Welcome to the City Beautiful Church podcast. Thank you for taking the time to join our family as we strive to live together in heavenly reality. For more great content, visit us online at citybeautiful.ch. All right, everyone, if you want to go ahead and move back to your seats. Welcome, welcome. So good to see all of you. Good to see you. Good to be seen. It's also good to have that, what do they call it at, um, at SeaWorld, like the splash zone? Got a nice little splash zone. Every church that I've been in since the day I was born, there's like that buffer. You know, like it's like a little too holy over here or something. I don't know, that's probably what it is. Being a pastor's kid, I had to sit in the front row, but in Episcopal churches, we have this like wooden wall. But it was my dad up there, so it was kind of weird anyway. I don't know. Um, Welcome everyone to City Beautiful Church, aka Neon Cross in the Mist, aka citybeautiful.ch. My name is Ryan, I'm the pastor here. It's really good to see all of you. Um, We're in this series called Signposts in the Mist. We started this last week and really what we're using this series to do is, is, is number one, to redeem and rescue the Old Testament. That many of us have been raised in ways um, that we either avoid the Old Testament um, or we kind of flatten it out with the rest of the text because we've been told that its, its purposes are something other than the reason that they were actually written. And so what we want to do in this series is recognize that the Old Testament, as part of the story of God, is really um, these series of stories and prophecies and poems and, and even and people that are kind of these signposts that are pointing to the full revelation of God that we find in Jesus. And so That second purpose of this series is that we might elevate who Jesus is. He's not just a character that shows up two-thirds of the way through the story and then it continues on, but that he's actually the ultimate revelation of what God is really like. And so last week, um, just kind of setting the tone for this series, I talked about um, how Jesus himself interacted with that idea. Uh, We looked at this amazing story in Luke chapter four where Jesus gets up to to preach in the synagogue and he reads from the prophet Isaiah and he stops uh, and kind of edits the scriptures and kind of rearranges some of them and then he begins to tell these very offensive stories uh, to the people that were listening because for them the scriptures were kind of reinforcing their senses of nationalism and their sense that we're we're the good guys and everybody else is the bad guys and, and we're God's favorite children and it almost gets him thrown off a cliff. And so today, what I want to do is actually look at how did the early church, beginning with Jesus' disciples, what was their approach to the Old Testament? As they began, because of their experiences with Jesus, to look through the lens of Jesus at the Old Testament scriptures, how did they wrestle with them? What did they find there? Um, And how did that shape the things that they've handed to us 2,000 years later? So I'm going to pray, uh, and we're going to jump right into this. Heavenly Father, we testify that you're here um, Lord, we don't, we don't need fog machines to, to feel your presence, to feel your glory, but it, it certainly helps. Um, and Lord, I just thank you for this strange, odd, beautiful, and blessed thing that we get to do called church, uh, where we take time out of our, our regular lives. We come together, we sing these songs together. Um, we pour over your scripture, your word, um, and all of it is in the service of, of us having this expectant encounter with you. Lord, I don't want any of us to leave here uh, disappointed that we didn't get that encounter. Um, But we know that you have to go before us to do that. You have to make straight the paths uh, and to lead us into uh, whatever new revelations of your love we really need to hear this morning. 
And so, Father, I, I just ask that you would send your Holy Spirit once more um, to open up our ears to hear your voice, to open our eyes to see uh, where you're moving in our lives and open up our hearts to receive your truth. And as always, Lord, may the words of my lips and the meditation of all of our hearts be ever pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. And so I kind of wanna draw in something that I was, I was kind of hinting at last week, and this shouldn't be a terrible surprise to anybody in the room. We are Christians because we claim Jesus is the climax of God's story. That's why we're called Christians. We're not called Biblians. We're not called Gaudians. We're not called Churchians. We're called Christians because we follow Christ. And I love that term, it was in the early church. We don't know if it just means like it was a, it was a word that has kind of this slave mentality and that's what it was, why it was labeled uh, the early church or if Christians was kind of this, this way that the, the Romans were teasing uh, these new followers of the way and just saying, look at these little Christs running around. But it, at some point in the church, we took that on ourselves and we said, yeah, that's right. That's the word that we're going to choose to identify ourselves with. And I think it's really important that that word, I think we're in another cultural season um, where it's best for us to ask, actually rescue and redeem that word instead of avoiding it because it's a good word and it's our word and we get to determine what it means because it really speaks to the, the, the linchpin of our faith, of our identity, that we find our identity in Christ. And so one of the things that I was talking about last week, when it's specifically when it comes to the Old Testament, is that when we avoid the Old Testament altogether, when we just pretend like it doesn't exist and we just jump in with the Gospels and maybe we'll dabble in the epistles, but there's a lot of things that Paul writes that are really confusing because we don't have any of the backstory, um, we miss the plot of the story, you know? It said it's, it's like you know, just watching Empire Strikes Back without getting into A New Hope. And again, I am terribly sorry that I confused Alec Baldwin and <laughs> Alec Guinness um, you know, I, I still, again, if they remake Star Wars, I'm, I'm putting Alec Baldwin out there to be Obi-Wan Kenobi. I think that would be pretty awesome. Um, but if we flatten the text, you know, we say this Leviticus 17 is 1 John chapter 3, it's all about the same, then we miss the theme. We don't know what the story is about. And that what we discover as Christians, that Jesus is the climax of the story, means the story has always been about him. We didn't always know that. I think we all love those stories where there's that dramatic twist, there's the unexpected encounter, and it dramatically shifts the plot of the story. That we thought it was about one thing and all of a sudden it's about something else entirely. And so we cannot overemphasize that as Christians, that Jesus is the climax of the story that we claim is being played out uh, in the entire universe. And this is not just true for us now in the 21st century, it's been true um, throughout time. This is um, one of the early church fathers, Saint Jerome, um, who was um, in, the, in the Roman church is considered one of their uh, pinnacle church fathers. And he, his real passion um, was in translating the scriptures. He actually was the first person to translate the scriptures from Greek into Latin. Uh, and so any of you that had to take Latin in school, you have this guy to thank for it. Um, but oftentimes we see St. Jerome portrayed like this. He's got a skull, he's got books, and he's, he's dressed very minimally because he devoted his entire life to pouring through the scriptures. He kind of, as we've seen with many stories of saints that I've shared with you, um, he, he lived in, you know, in the city of Rome, and he got so sick of the affluence, he got so sick of the hypocrisy, 
he got so sick of, of the way that church was being done that he actually retreated and devoted his entire life uh, to studying the word of God. And, and some of his translations and uh, commentaries on the Old Testament still survive today. And there's this really fascinating little line he was writing in the commentary uh, on, on the prophet Isaiah, and he said this to his friend that he's writing to. He said, the one who does not know the scriptures does not know the power of God and his wisdom. Ignorance of the scriptures is ignorance of Christ. And so even there, we have to live in this tension that as Christians, we do see Jesus as the climax of God's story, but it also doesn't mean that we just throw out the scriptures. We need to sit in that tension. How do we reconcile the God as revealed in Jesus with specifically the God that we find in the Old Testament, the stories that we find there, the things that are confusing to us that just seem a little out of whack, specifically when we're talking about the violence of the Old Testament. We're talking about wrath, or if we're talking about um, nationalism, or we're talking, you know, all of these different struggles that we have, we need to name those things and not pretend like they're not there. Because if you have a problem with the Old Testament, if you struggle with it, that means you're actually paying attention, and that's good. But we have to trust that Jesus is going to lead us into a deeper way of understanding that. I was trying to think of a really great analogy for, for how to describe the way that Jesus is the climax of God's story, but that it gathers all of the story in together. Um, and one of the things that I've actually uh, recognized through study is that I think inadvertently Beethoven gave us the perfect analogy with his Ninth Symphony. So this is what happened. Um, someone commissions Beethoven to write a symphony. It's gonna be his ninth. This is gonna be his absolute masterwork. This is the one. He spends years and years and years writing this thing. And in doing so, he creates one of the biggest pieces that's ever been written until that point. Um, the, the, the symphony clocks in at like an hour and 10 minutes. It's this absurd length. And there's four movements in the symphony as you would normally assume. We, we all know that's a standard rule of symphonies, right? You have four movements, duh. You know, there's a little andante here, a little Picasso there, you know. Um, and so can I have that playing while I'm talking about it? Is that okay? Great, thank you. So. So he writes this movement, it's incredibly long, um, it's got these four movements, but you, the really interesting thing is that Beethoven starts to really play with what a symphony is. And so in the fourth movement, he begins what we call a symphony within a symphony, and very few people had ever accomplished this before. And so he takes what he had written, these previous three movements, some of you would be familiar with the music, and he pulls out these little themes that he had written before, and he gathers them all up into the fourth part of the symphony, and he starts to piece them all together. So it's almost like a reminder. You remember this? You remember this? You remember this? Because it was an hour ago, and maybe it's a little bit hard for you to remember. And he starts to, he starts to play with this, kind of lays it all out, and then he brings in this new piece, and first the low strings come in, and they start to play this theme, and then the higher strings come over it, and it starts to get a little bit louder, and a little bit louder, and all of a sudden, everything's being gathered into this moment. And it becomes the piece of Beethoven's Ninth Symphony that we all know, because it's called the Ode to Joy. And it's, it's this transformative, almost central moment in not just classical music, but music in general. But Beethoven doesn't even stop there. He plays this theme with, all of the, with this magnificent orchestra that he's crafted, and then he pauses and he brings the theme back in, but this time he uses a choir, which was a big no-no in the day. And the choir begins to take up um, this song, this triumphant song, this ode to joy, and the very first line is, oh, let's not do away with that old tune, let's sing this new song of joy. And it becomes this pinnacle um, of music uh, in our culture. 
And I love that that imagery, that the whole thing matters. You know, we could just listen to this piece of the symphony and we know it, we feel it, it, it lifts something in our spirit. But when you've sat through all of Beethoven's ninth and you've been acquainted with all of these different themes and then they're gathered up in this one triumphant moment and something's laid on top of them that you weren't expecting, it, it becomes transcendent. And that's what I'm really saying about scripture, that there's all of these different themes and we find in Jesus the themes within the themes. You know, the symphony within the symphony that Jesus is, that he gathers up all of these different moments in the story that had come before, and he lays them out, but he rescues them and redeems them and adds something to them that wasn't there prior. And that's the thing that we remember. That's the moment that we really claim. And so what we see all through the, the New Testament, all through the writings um, of the early church, is that they keep coming back to this line. They say, Jesus died in accordance with the scriptures. If any of you are familiar with the Apostles or the Nicene Creed, the kind of the foundation of a lot of our church, um, they, they use that line, Jesus died in accordance with the scriptures. And so it really bears us asking, what do they mean when they're saying that? Because when we read the New Testament, there are 855 quotes from the Old Testament in the Gospels and the Epistles and so on. They continually, not only were they using quotes from the Old Testament, they were using the imagery from the Old Testament and drawing it in to the New Testament. But again, if we're not familiar with the Old Testament the way that first century Jews were, we miss all of those images. Actually, in the book of Revelation contains 249 quotes of the Old Testament. Every single image in the book of Revelation has an Old Testament corollary. But we don't recognize that because we're not familiar enough with the story. So we don't really recognize what John is actually trying to do in the book of Revelation. And so that's where we, get, we go wrong when we're trying to interpret whatever Revelation really means. But when we recognize that he's telling Israel the story all over again, using these images, bundling them all up into this, this dramatic theater piece that he's creating in Revelation, it gives us a much clearer understanding of what he's actually doing. But as much as the New Testament writers and the early church leaned into the Old Testament, they took those stories, they took those verses, they took those prophecies, and they laid them all at the feet of Jesus. And I think that's really the tension that we're invited to live in. And so I think it's really helpful to recognize that the Old Testament was the anticipation of God's final word. That's why I said last week that, you know, we kind of were left on this cliffhanger at the end of the story. God, when are you going to reveal yourself to us? When are you going to come and, and deliver on the promises that you made? What do you really look like? So the Old Testament is kind of this anticipation of what is to come, these signposts in the mist. We know that there's something there. We know that God's coming because he's promised. We don't exactly know what he looks like, but we're gonna trust that we're gonna know it when we see it. And if that's how we see the Old Testament as that anticipation, then the New Testament is the exposition of that very same word. That the Old Testament is looking for God's final word. God speaks perfectly, and it's the image of Jesus. And then the New Testament writers are just unpacking that word. And here we are 2,000 years later, and we're still unpacking what that word means. You see, Jesus is such the, such the beautiful and accurate representation of God that it takes all of us our lifetimes even to understand the slightest piece of what that really is. So I think the New Testament is almost more like the forensic analysis after the meteor has already hit. You know, we're trying to figure out what just happened. 
what was this? How do we put this into language so that we can all understand this gigantic event that's taken place? I wanna show you uh, how this plays out in the New Testament. In 1 John chapter four, we're gonna be looking at a short passage here. So this is um, John, the beloved disciple, and this is something that's been written out of his community, so it really drips with his language, and this is what they said. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we ought to love one another. And this is the verse. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. This is how we know that we live in him and he in us. He's given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in them and they in God. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. No one has ever seen God. How can you possibly write that when you stand on the, the testimony of the scriptures? Adam saw God. Moses saw God. There's this whole big story where the, that, the, that this, the word of the Lord comes to Moses and says, you're about to see him, but he's you know, gonna show his back to you. And, and, you know, and then Moses goes up on the mountain and he's with God there. We see these other stories where Abraham sees, oh no, sorry, it's Abraham sees the back of God. Moses sees God up on the mountain. And so we have all of these stories in scripture where someone sees God. But here's John saying, no one has ever seen God. This isn't an accident. I think John is choosing his words very carefully. Because what John is telling his community and what John is telling us is until you see Jesus, you've only caught a glimpse of God. And this becomes the central theology of John, of his gospel, of the letters, and so on, is it's the tangible encounter with Jesus. It's encountering Jesus that's the real encounter with God and what he's really like. And so our genuine encounter with God, as revealed in Jesus, transforms us and our religion. This is what we're here for. We're here for that encounter with God that changes us, and it changes our religion. What do I mean by religion? I mean our, our standard practices, the way we go about doing our faith. We're all religious, let's all just relax, it's okay. There's, a good, there's good religion and there's bad religion. And bad religion is when we do things for our own sake. Bad religion is when we do things because we're trying to earn our place in the family of God. Bad religion is when we use our practices and our beliefs in order to persecute other people. But good religion is when we craft spaces and moments and practices that actually help us to lean into encounter with God so that we might be changed. And I don't think we see anything more dramatic than that than in the life of St. Paul. So many of you have probably read the story in Acts chapter nine. Saul was uh, going about persecuting the early church. Saul was uh, a Pharisee. He was a very well-educated man, and he's going about kind of you know, murdering Christians right there in the, in the first century. And so he's, he's on this road to Damascus, he's on this horse, and all of a sudden there's this blinding light that knocks him off of his horse. And he's lying on the ground, he can't see anything, and this voice says, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And, Saul, and then Saul asks the one question of this voice that every Hebrew should have known, that every rabbi should have known. He says, who are you, Lord? And the voice says, I'm Jesus whom you're persecuting. And so Saul is blinded in that moment. And I think Saul's blinded to realize, actually, he's always been blind. 
And so if you know how this story goes on, Saul is welcomed in to a small gathering of Christians and, and, and rehabilitated, and eventually he receives his sight again, and he becomes the apostle Paul. And it's that dramatic encounter, I think, that dramatically shifted the, everything that Paul understood about God or what he thought about God. We see this in Philippians 3. He's kind of giving his testimony. He says this, if someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. So Paul's saying, you want to talk about credentials? I've got them. I was born into the right family of the right people. I went to the right schools. We even think that maybe Paul was on, his, on the path to actually becoming the next high priest. He was that educated. He was that revered in Judea in his time. And so he says, you know, this is the very bold statement he says. He says, like, when it comes to the Torah, when it comes to following the law, nailed it. Did it perfectly. I did everything my Bible told me to do. And then he goes on. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through the faithfulness of Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. And so Paul's saying, everything, I knew everything about the law. I knew everything about scripture. I knew exactly how, what God was like and what's supposed to be happening. But I had such a radical encounter with God as he's fully revealed in Jesus that I, I lose it all. It's all gone. All I wanna know is, all I wanna do is to know Jesus. And that becomes the, the goal of his life. You see, Saul and by extension, Paul had to move from this idea of getting it right, getting the Bible right, getting the rules right, getting religion right, and he moved from there to knowing God and being known by him. That's what we mean when we talk about righteousness. That's what righteousness is. Righteousness isn't about you achieving all of the rules of knowing, even knowing what you're talking about. Righteousness is about you recognizing and encountering the faithfulness of Jesus, that he died in accordance with the scriptures. Maybe another way to say it is that Paul moved from, for the Bible tells me so, to for Jesus tells me so. Because if you think about it, Saul was persecuting the early church because that's what his Bible told him to do. He knew the scriptures, he had memorized them, and he read them and he decided that's God's will. That's God's character. That's what God wants me to do as his faithful servant. But he had to have this encounter. He had to get knocked off his horse. He had to be blinded. So he moved to saying, because Jesus tells me so. I think Paul's conversion then is the experience that changed the way he read the scriptures that he was supposed to be the expert in. And we see this all throughout his scriptures. Once we really understand Paul's conversion and we begin to read Paul's letters, we see it all over the place. But I, I wanna draw in, this is one of my absolute favorite examples of this. This is in Romans 15. We're gonna be looking at verses seven to 13. Paul says this, accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you in order to bring praise to God. 
For I tell you that Christ has become a servant of the Jews on behalf of God's truth, so that the promises made to the patriarchs might be confirmed, and moreover, that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. So even there, he's saying, he's not discounting the story. He's saying, Jesus is the fulfillment of God's story. Jesus is the fulfillment of Israel's vocation to be the people of God, to be the reflection of God out into the world. And it's actually that Jesus fulfills all of those things that we see the patriarchs and their stories are blessed. And so he goes on and he actually quotes four passages of the Old Testament. As it is written, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles. I will sing the praises of your name from 2 Samuel. Again it says, rejoice you Gentiles with his people. That's from Deuteronomy 32. And again, praise the Lord all you Gentiles. Let all the peoples extol him from Psalm 117. And again Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will spring up one who will arise to rule over the nations. In him, the Gentiles will hope. And he finishes this passage by saying, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. And for those of us that don't read the Old Testament, we're like, yep, sounds great. I'm in it, I love it. I'm glad that now there's some Old Testament in there. I don't have to actually go back and read it. But let me conveniently print off some of those passages and read them to you. Um, let's do 2 Samuel 22. I pursued my enemies and crushed them. I did not turn back till they were destroyed. I crushed them completely and they could not rise. They fell beneath my feet. You armed me with strength for battle. You humbled my adversaries before me. You, ma you made my enemies turn their backs in flight and I destroyed my foes. They cried for help, but there was no one to save them to the Lord, but he did not answer. I beat them as fine as the dust of the earth. I pounded and trampled them like mud in the streets. You have delivered me from the attacks of the people. You have preserved me as the head of nations. People I did not know now serve me. Foreigners cower before me. As soon as they hear of me, they obey me. They all lose heart. They come trembling from their strongholds. The Lord lives. Praise be to my rock. Exalted be my God, the rock, my savior. He is the God who avenges me, who puts the nations under me, who sets me free from my enemies. You exalted me above my foes. From a violent man, you rescued me. Therefore, I will praise you, Lord, among the nations. I will sing the praises of your name. He gives his king great victories. He shows unfailing kindness to his anointed, to David and his descendants forever. So Paul pulls out the last line in this song that David is writing about vanquishing his foes. But it gets better. I'm gonna start doing some beat poetry, just, just reading the Old Testament to people. So he quotes from Deuteronomy 32. He says, rejoice you Gentiles with his people. This is how Paul's reading his Bible. He says this, Deuteronomy 32. See now that I myself am him. There is no God beside me. I put to death and I bring life. I have wounded and I will heal and no one can deliver out of my hand. I lift my hand to heaven and solemnly swear as surely as I live forever. When I sharpen my flashing sword and my hand grasps it in judgment, I will take vengeance on my adversaries and repay those who hate me. I will make my arrows drunk with blood. That is such good imagery. Come on. It's like Walt Whitman here. I will make my arrows drunk with blood while my sword devours flesh. The blood of the slain and the captives, the heads of the enemy leaders. Rejoice, you nations, you people, for he will avenge the blood of his servants. He will take vengeance on his enemies and make atonement for his land and people. Has Paul actually read this? Does he know what he's talking about? Because let me read again in Romans 15 how he starts and he brackets all these quotes. Accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you in order to bring praise to God. 
And he finishes, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's almost comedic. I think Paul is actually being ironic by quoting these passages from the Old Testament because what he's advocating for, what he sees in Jesus as the climax of God's story is literally the opposite of what these passages of scripture were about when they were written. And I think the message that Paul's conveying to his community and by extension to us is deeper than just God is welcoming in the Gentiles now. But I think he's also saying God's character and his will are fully on display in Christ Jesus. Paul isn't justifying the Bible on its own terms. He's justifying Jesus. That is scandalous. That is controversial. But Paul had such a dramatic encounter of Jesus that Jesus becomes the lens through which he looks back at that Old Testament. Maybe this is good news after all. Maybe the gospel of Jesus is actually good news because we see in it the fulfillment of everything that God had promised and that those that came before us, they were peering through the mist. They had a glimpse. They had an understanding. They, They were working it out. But when they came to the cross, when they came to Jesus, they said, ah, this is what God has been like this whole time. We didn't always know it. We weren't always aware of it. But this becomes my new standard of what Jesus is really like. There is so much fear in our religion. And I think some of it is because Jesus seems too good to be true that Jesus looks like he's the fairy tale and that maybe we should just stick with our tried and true religion. We're the good guys, they're the bad guys. We're on the inside, they're on the outside. And I think we turn to lesser views of God because that's what we expect God should be like. He's like us, but he just carries a little bit bigger of a stick. He has all the same prejudices and fears that we do. He just gets to do something about it. But how many people have walked away from God? How many people do you know in your life that have walked away from Jesus because they can't reconcile the God they read in the scriptures with the God as revealed in Jesus? And I think this is a challenge to us as a church. We have to do better. We have to do better. We need to know what we're talking about. We need to know how to come alongside of people, how to wrestle with people along the journey of discovery. That again, for us, our righteousness is not based on what we know and what we don't know and how clever we are. Our righteousness is based on relationship with God as revealed in Jesus. And that's the thing that we have to offer other people. That's what we offer to our friends and family. That's what we offer to strangers. That's what we offer to people half a world away. That's what we're called to as Christians. But as a church, we've got to do better. We cannot scare people into the kingdom. We cannot threaten or coerce people into the kingdom. So what does that mean for us in the way that we hold and we bless our holy scriptures? This is the best advice that I can possibly give you when it comes to the Bible. We come to the scriptures to discover Jesus. 
We bring Jesus with us when we explore the scriptures. When you came in, on, there's a little card that we had printed up for you. This, you I want you to use this um, as a bookmark in your Bible to remind you of this relationship. That as Christians, Jesus is supreme. He's on top. And the scriptures are there to testify about him. And the difficulty is, how do we encounter Jesus without the scriptures? And I believe this is the, the answer. We come to the scriptures with this expectation. I'm not here just to understand the story. I'm not here just to break it apart and research the Greek and do all of the cross-referencing, although all of that is great and it has its place. I'm coming to these scriptures because I wanna discover Jesus, because I'm a Christian, because I'm a follower of him, and I wanna know what he's really like. But when we come to the scriptures, we bring Jesus along with us, whatever we know about him, and we ask the spirit of Jesus to illuminate these very difficult passages in scripture for us. It's this cycle, this rhythm, this relationship between the word of God that's found in the Holy Scriptures and the word of God that's perfectly viewed in Christ. But Jesus is the supreme part of that relationship. And for you and I, if you get stuck with an Old Testament passage, I want you to choose Jesus. I want you to choose Jesus over the Bible. Maybe that's scandalous too. Maybe that's the line that'll get me thrown off the cliff. But I'm not giving that to you as a cop-out. I think that's a challenge and that's an invitation that when you get stuck, you choose Jesus and then you come back again and you wrestle with it because it matters. It's not an escape, it's an invitation because I believe the standard that Jesus sets for what God is like is actually the higher standard that we are to attest to. Again, another early church father, St. Augustine said, the new is the old concealed, talking about the scriptures. The New Testament is the Old Testament concealed and the old is the new revealed. And so when we come to the Bible, we recognize the Old Testament is the anticipation of Jesus as the Messiah, and the New Testament is the exposition of who he really is. And when we come to Jesus through the Bible, we're looking for him to rescue and redeem those scriptures, to lead us into a deeper intimacy with him. And so over the next several weeks, we're gonna be looking at how some of this works, how the, the, the people and the places, the stories and the prophecies, how all of them are these signposts in the mist that are there specifically with the purpose to point us down the road towards Jesus. But I think this is the challenge for all of us. You know, when you're in love with somebody, you see them everywhere. You're reminded of them everywhere you go. You can't stop thinking about them. You know, the most mundane moments of your day become animated because you're in love with somebody and even if they're not there, they've affected your world. They've infected your world. Love is an infection. But it's because our beloved, not only do we see our beloved, but our beloved becomes the way that we see everything else. And that's where we need to be as Christians. That we're so in love with Jesus, not only do we gaze upon his beauty, but he becomes the lens through which we gaze at everything else. Everything reminds us of our beloved. The most normal, boring, everyday moments of our lives become animated and imbued with this holiness because it reminds us of our beloved, that we belong to him and he to us. And so let's stand. And we're gonna mark out one of those moments in worship. 
that we come together and we sing these songs. And what we're saying at the core of them is, I am my beloved's and he is mine. Jesus is, is he that I gaze upon, the most beautiful face ever. But Jesus is also the way that I see everything else. And let's worship with that expectation of encounter that we're gonna meet him here, that as we sing these songs to ourselves, as we sing them over our brothers and sisters here, and as we sing them to God, that he comes and he fills us and he transforms us. I'm gonna pray, I'm gonna worship. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the, the grand symphony that your scriptures are, that all along the way you're laying down these themes these little moments, these glimpses of your character and your will, but they're all there to kind of bring us to that climactic moment. When the choir comes in, when the orchestra is full, when people are almost on the edge of their seat, listening, being moved by the music that is Jesus. Because he's why we're here, he's why we're Christians. It's in him that we lay down the tent pegs of our identity. It's in him that we put our trust. It's in him that we put our hope. So Lord, again, we invite you, come into this space. Be here, Spirit of Jesus. We give you permission to move freely in us and through us and around us. You're not a God who coerces. You're not a God who seeks to scare us or terrify us. You don't impress yourself upon us. You don't force yourself upon us. But you stand at the threshold of each one of our lives waiting to be welcomed in. And that's how we want to mark this moment, Lord. So accept our praise, Father, as a, as a testimony and also as a trajectory for knowing and being known by you. We pray this in the strong and the beautiful and blessed name of Jesus. This has been the City Beautiful Church podcast. To stay connected, follow us on social everywhere at City Beautiful CH. We hope you join us again soon.